Welcome to Kitchen Sink. I'm Thomas Kilroy and this is episode 16. Uh, today is, uh, let me think, June the 14th and it's in the afternoon and I am recording this, hoping to get this out to you, uh, if not by this evening uh, on the same day, uh, certainly by Saturday morning. It should be with you So for your, for your listening pleasure over the weekend. So let me see, was there any, uh, any follow-up from last week? I have to say... That uh, just the saying or that phrase, I have to say, um, I asked, I, I sent the link to my mom and I said, um, have a listen. What do you think? Anyway, she she FaceTimed me. I said, well, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. You see, I have to say a lot, don't you? And I said, uh, yeah, I do. I need to work on that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's all right. We, you know, there's a lot of topics there that we, we, we you know, we can't really comment on. But um, do you drink a lot of water? <laughs> So I said, yeah, I do drink a lot of water, but I will endeavor to drink more water during my uh, recording, just so that uh, it doesn't tend to flag towards the end. But anyway, I love you, mom. Thanks for the feedback. Always honest as ever. And dad, of course, is sitting next to her in his favorite chair. They're back in Athlone in the Midlands of Ireland, having just uh, retired as dad would put it, after 45 years behind bars, uh, pubs and bars and clubs and hotels. Um, and I remember growing up uh, from the age of, oh my goodness, as, as long as I can remember, certainly uh, uh, vivid memories at the age of six and seven years old of standing behind the, the bar um, where I could reach up and pull a pint of Guinness uh, when my dad would be out. This is in the pub in Athen Rye, uh, next to the church in uh, Church Street. And I would have just got in from school. So he'd say, you know, keep an eye on the bar there and I'll uh, I'll just pop up and make a sandwich. So I'm standing there and then there'd be a few regulars coming in. And, and um, I remember Vet Murphy, uh, God rest his soul, my goodness. And he used to come in and have <laughs> a woeful amount of, of gin and tonic, a very little tonic, I seem to remember. Um, and then a few of the lads would join and uh, all the banter. And it always struck me, I remember thinking back to those days, you know, you'd get somebody coming in, uh, uh, you know, a guy sitting on his own and having a pint. And it just, I never understood it for years and years and years. Why would anyone want to sit there in abject silence and just drink uh, two or three pints of Guinness and then go out the door and hardly say a word? And of course, as time goes by, <laughs> you begin to appreciate those moments of solitude when you can switch off and while away the time and just just be, just just do that, just be. And uh, it is Father's Day uh, on Sunday. And I bought a card for my dad three weeks ago and I had it in my the drawer here on my desk. And then I remembered at the beginning of the week, oh, I must get this sent off. Took it out, signed it, got my wife and my daughter to sign it. And, and of course, the next thing <laughs> I realized that this morning, Friday, I haven't sent it. Uh, so I've, I've zipped down to the post office. I put it in the post, but I, I phoned my mom and she said, no, we're, we don't get any postal uh, deliveries on Saturday or Sunday so sorry dad you're going to get your card around Tuesday or Wednesday I think but uh, um, just thinking back to you know the over the years um, with my my dad serving serving lots and lots of people behind the bar and uh, it always reminded me of a short story that was written by John D. Sheridan and uh, it's called A Man with a Pint and I have it here so I'm, I'm going to um, I'm going to read this to you and I often think of dad being the, the the man pulling the pint in this story so a man with a pint hang on let me just set the scene here hang on hang on 
That's better. Okay. A Man with a Pint by John D. Sheridan There are few things more restful than watching an expert drinking a pint, but there are one or two conditions. He must be a man who drinks regularly, but never to excess. There must be no hurry in him, and he must be drinking alone. The very manner of his entrance is soothing. It sets him apart, and although he mutters something to the man behind the bar, he has no need to mutter, for the man behind the bar knows a pint man when he sees one. It is not a matter of dress or age or social status. It is a sort of spiritual look. The barman fills the tumbler slowly, taking the black stuff from several taps and builds up a head worthy of the body. Then he sets his offering down. He doesn't slam it down or plant it down. He sets it down. The tempo is right from the very beginning. But he doesn't set it down in the right place, for in spite of his years of practice, he doesn't know the right place. After all, he's only a general practitioner, and this is a specialist job. So the pint man takes up the tumbler with ritualistic care and moves it a little further along the counter. For a second or two he looks at it objectively and without desire. Then he looks away from it, forgets it, and falls asleep. And still asleep, he puts a match to his pipe and takes a few sacrificial pulls. Nothing can touch him then. The clock ticks for you and me, but the pint man is on an island, in time. He is no longer old or young, rich or poor, married or single. He is beyond the numbing grip of circumstance, a devotee of a solemn rite, a poet with unfrenzied eye, a man with a pint. Presently, if you have time to spare and can keep awake, for there is a restful mesmeric quality about the whole business, you will see him come out of his holy trance in slow stages. First, a tiny tremor runs through him, and he seems aware of the tumbler. But it is only a tiny awareness. It might be any tumbler, and it is somewhere in the middle distance. When his hand begins to work again, and the picture comes into proper focus, he looks at his pint disinterestedly, almost reproachfully, and turns away from it, like a contemplative dealing with a minor distraction. But even as he turns... His right hand, that ungodly and rebellious member, reaches out for the tumbler and finds it by sheer tactual memory. The arm joins the conspiracy and the glass rises five or six inches from the counter. The pint man doesn't know how it got there and has obviously forgotten how to deal with such a situation. But his lips remember and his mouth, turning traitor, comes down to meet the tumbler. He doesn't tilt the glass very much and he doesn't need to. It remains almost perpendicular but the black stuff seems to flow out of it and into him of its own volition, breaking the law of gravity in some occult siphoning. When his eye meets yours across the top of the tumbler, it is still calm and remote. There is no urgency in him, and from the theological point of view it is debatable whether or not there is full consent. The only sign of ecstasy you can detect in him is a slight commotion about his Adam's apple, and it is very slight, for he can open his throat like a tenor. There is no tension, no resistance, no strain. When the glass is three quarters empty, the fraction varies a little with the performer. Some virtuosos raise it thirteenths, sixteenths. He sets it down on the counter again and wipes his mouth. But there is no gloating. These are simply reflex actions carried out by the ungenerate right hand, which does not seem to be under the direct control of the will. The pint man comes to life then. He blinks a few times, shrugs his shoulders changes his stance. He fills his pipe and puffs as if he meant it. 
the spell is broken. You can talk to him now and he'll answer, for he is back in the world of men. He is interested in politics and prices, and he has opinions about the weather. And you must make the most of him while you have him, for you will not have him for very long. He is simply resting between two periods of deep contemplation. Very soon, the glazed look comes back into his eyes, and you know he is on the verge of another bout of dynamic relaxation. He knows it himself too, and just before he loses consciousness, he finishes his pint and orders a second. And this time he doesn't even mutter, he just nods. The barman, moving on tiptoe, sets down the second pint in almost the right place. But almost is not good enough for your pint man, and before he slips off again into the world of dreams, he sets the stage for his reawakening. His flight from reality is so smooth and so sudden that it almost brings you with it. The clock slows down and a great peace flows over you. So before it engulfs you completely, you finish your pint of lager and steal out into the night. The buses seem noisier than ever and the streets brighter. You are back again in the world of everyday things with its little kindnesses and cruelties, its hopes and fears. But you're ready for it as never before. You feel as refreshed as if you had just come from a musical recital or finished a great poem, for you have seen an artist at work and you feel the better for it. That's for you, Dad. A man with a pint. Happy Father's Day for Sunday. Love you loads. So what's been happening this week in uh, hospitality? Well, I did see uh, a couple of posts there to recognise that this week is Men's Health Week. So I thought I would share a couple of articles with you that I think uh, are worth reading. You know, it's very difficult to to keep yourself motivated and keep things upbeat, uh, you know, when we when we think we have these moments of doubt. I know I have these moments of doubt all the time, and I'm sure many of you are the same. So I have a couple of uh, really, really super good articles. Um, and they're, you know, they're slow burners. They're ones that you can put away and you can bring them out every now and then. Uh, one of them, uh, which was in the New York Times, and actually this was written in, let me see, 2013. And then uh, the editor's note says we're resurfacing this story from the archives to help you get 2017 off to a successful start. But actually, I think it is still valid today. So I am sharing it again. It's called The Secret Ingredient for Success. Basically, it says, what does self-awareness have to do with a restaurant empire or a tennis champion or a rock star's dream? Um, And then it goes on to give three um, amazing examples of people who really had to change the way they uh, thought about life in general. Uh, It goes on to say the tennis champion Martina Navratilova, for example, told us that after a galling loss to Chris Everett in 1981, she questioned her assumption that she could get by on talent and instinct alone. She began a long exploration of every aspect of her game. She adopted a rigorous cross-training practice, common today but essentially unheard of at the time, revamped her diet and her mental and tactical game, and ultimately transformed herself into the most successful women's tennis player of her era. 
So uh, a really nice article. I'm going to share that with you. It's worth reading. And then to, to follow up on that, here is a fantastic article. It's, again, another bit of a long read. So these are really good, especially over this weekend, uh, to have a read. Psychology shows it's a big mistake to base your self-worth on our professional achievements. So uh, this was in a... Um, it's an article that's in QZ.com, uh, written by um, Emily Esfahani-Smith. Uh, again, it's an old article from 2017, but I think it's still as relevant today as ever. Uh, contemporary society has some very wrong-headed ideas about what constitutes success. Popular thinking holds that a person who went to Harvard is smarter and better than someone who attended Ohio State. Or that a father who stays at home with his kids is contributing less to society than a man who works at a Fortune 500 company. Or that a woman with 200 Instagram followers must be less valuable than a woman with 2 million. And it goes on to um, talk about, uh, well, it's from the author of a book called The Power of Meaning. And I think that is something that we are all looking for in this day and age. Um, so there's some fa fantastic uh, advice and, and ways to reframe what, how you define success. To thrive, people need to feel like they have a role to play in their communities and skin in the game of life. This fact is evident in classic psychology study of adult development, which followed 40 men over 10 years 10 years of their lives in the 70s. One of these men, a novelist, had gone through a rough patch in his career, but when he got a call asking him to teach creative writing at a university, he said it was a sort of confirmation of my usefulness. Another man had the opposite experience. He had been unemployed for over a year when he told the researchers, I'm running into a blank wall. I feel that I'm useless, no good to anybody. The idea that I can't provide the necessities, that the money is not there, and that we cannot get my son what he needs, it makes me feel like a dope. The first man, the opportunity to be generative, gave him a, a purpose. For the second, the denial of that opportunity was a bitter blow. For both of them, as for most people, unemployment is not just an economic issue. It was an existential one as, as well. A really, really super good article. I, I really recommend you read that, especially um, if you are, like me, uh, a man of a certain age and you're just querying... <laughs> Where are you in life and, and, and how are you, are you measuring your success? Um, it's something that we all think about and I can promise you one thing. There are people who love you. There are people who are, support you, who want you to do well. If you're struggling, by all means, please, please, please talk to somebody um, and get in touch. I know that uh, Hospitality Action is a charity that is very focused on this um, and by all means, um, I'm available. Uh, if you want to send me an email, and I can put you in touch with some people people but uh it, it it's it's something that we we have to be very mindful of um please 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 talk it through on a more um transactional level uh dealing with stress here's one that i thought i would share with you how to cope with email overload Andrew Crosby has 7,000 emails in his inbox and uh to some that might look not not sound like many but he's only been at a, a company for a year, so there's not much time for the inbox to get out of control. And it goes on to explain kind of how he deals with that. And more importantly, uh, some really, really super good tips, such as enforced breaks or inbox zero, something I've talked about in the past. Um, uh, Slack attack, if you use Slack at work, then maybe there are, there are other tools that your company uses to, to get away from from. Uh, email. The trick, according to Mr. Collins, is to be strict about how you use it. He attaches a document to all his emails explaining his personal policy, which warns correspondents that his emails will be brief, and unless they are a current client, 
you should not expect a quick reply. Well, there's one tactic. Um, I wonder how your clients would deal with it if you attach something to explain to them that you may not even respond in the future if it's not important. Uh, why not? Give it a go. <laughs> if you do, let me know how you got on. <laughs> Luke Johnson. There's a guy who has been absolutely through the mill and back over the last few months. There's a, a really nice article here in The Guardian. Patisserie Valerie X Chair says he was tricked by false picture of company's health. Luke Johnson says collapse of change shattered his self-belief. There is somebody who is absolutely at the top of their game. They are writing every week, um, offering business advice to people. They are seen as a doyen of the business world. Um, some of the investments they have made have been, uh, you know, have paid off massively and they've been hugely successful. And then suddenly the rug is pulled from under them. How do you cope with that? And I think this will be a, a case study in um uh, business resilience uh, for, for, for years to come. So what he says here is, the stress made me physically ill. I suffered a series of debilitating infections and was on antibiotics for weeks, Johnson said. I had chronic insomnia and felt exhausted and despairing. I rarely ventured out. I had paranoid sense that people would be staring at me. If I was arrogant at times before, my ego has taken quite a battering since. A very public disaster such as this shatters your self-belief. The fact that he is willing to come out and, and lay bare uh, what he went through uh, and, and talk about how it really affected him. It was like a punch in the stomach, it seems, um, and how he intends to sort of try and put that behind him and bounce back um i have to say i wish you every success uh, mr luke johnson i am more and more impressed um every day by the the more i i read about this and the more i hear about uh the the the, the sheer resilience that you are displaying um it, i i find it very inspiring and i think many people will too so i wish you every success and i look forward to to seeing how you um, move forward in your future investments. Talking of investments, uh, one of the ways that Mr. Luke Johnson made his money was, of course, he was one of the original investors in Pizza Express and built that up and, and sold off the company. So I don't believe that he's <laughs> any longer involved in it. So when an article uh, came up uh, that said Pizza Express suffers 55 million pound loss amid casual dining crunch, uh, my jaw hit the floor. So this was in big hospitality. It says here that Pizza Express saw pre-tax losses almost double to reach 55 million pounds in 2018, which it blamed on tough trading in the UK and overseas. And as I go down and read this, it is absolutely mind-boggling some of the numbers uh, that are that this this board of directors must must be looking at every single day. EBITDA dropped fifteen percent to eighty million pounds. Pre-tax losses widened from twenty-eight point seven million to fifty-five million, which the company says was by f driven by falling profits and net net interest charges of ninety-three million pounds. That is a lot of interest. As Pizza Express has debts of one point one two billion pounds, uh, 655 million of which is due for repayment in 2021. 
So there you have it, 1.12 billion pounds in debts. And that was uh, what I was alluding to last week when I talked about how uh, private equity, you know, I, I mentioned that market halls are, are in line for uh, a 20 million pound injection of cash that can expand. And that is fantastic news. And I wish the guys every success. And I have no doubt that they are going to be hugely successful with that because they seem to know what they're doing. But at the same time, when there is lots of money sloshing around, are the correct decisions being made? So let's see how Pizza Express uh, manages to claw their way out of that uh, deep hole that they find themselves in. I guess one way of looking at it is that Pizza Express is still a going concern. Um, who knows what's going on behind the scenes, but it, but that is the case at the moment. Unlike this week, we've seen more closures. So American barbecue restaurant Pit Q has closed, according to uh, Emma Lake in the Catra. And having seen that uh, headline on Twitter, there was a lot of comments uh, where people had had obviously been huge fans of PitQ and and really liked what it had to offer. However, many of them said that when it moved from its original Soho site to a site in the city, it lost that very soul that it had and and kind of lost the very magic ingredient that made them really enjoy what it was that um, PitQ had to offer. Um, and equally, Hawksmoor Group have now re- um, closed their remaining Foxglow restaurants. So again, some uh, high-profile closures in the last few days as this uh, uncertainty in the economy around Brexit uh, continues to take hold. So I hope that uh, you are riding this out. Uh, it, it is certainly a very difficult period and everybody has to you know, do what they can to keep an eye on those margins and make sure that everything everything is um, airtight as as much as possible and of course we've had this unbelievable rain over the last few days where we've had you know almost a month's worth of rain in a single 24-hour period here's a story that i thought was much more closer to home for for anyone in the hospitality industry how rainy day blues affect restaurant ratings uh, this is an article by leslie uh, Wu in forbes as if it isn't enough that the fickle fancies of diners can be influenced by a restaurant's non-food elements such as lighting seating and temperature a series of studies has now concluded that even the weather can play a part in the perception of a night out well we kind of knew that but more anecdotally but it seems they've done a series of uh, surveys um, and and collated all of that and restaurant managers may see more than the usual bad reviews on certain days and it may have nothing to do with the service or the quality of the food restaurants can't control the weather but it may affect how customers review them and what happened basically was uh, in the first uh, study a visiting assistant professor of hospitality uh, looked at the comment cards left at 32 sites of a national fast casual restaurant chain. The team then correlated the findings and ranked them one very negative to five very positive with data about 14 weather variables, including rain temperature and bar- bar- barometric pressure. Uh, on average, diners were 2.9 times more likely to rate the restaurant poorly on a day where the restaurant was bad. So there you go. If you have a mm, restaurant <laughs> review or a restaurant critic coming to visit your restaurant, pre- please pray that you get a sunny day because that should uh, hopefully improve their perception of your restaurant. 
Another little story that has come to my attention, thanks to uh, Dennis uh, Sheehan over there at the Hospitality and Catering News. And he writes that the Italian job 50th anniversary celebrations are also happening uh, at the Royal Lancaster Hotel. The Italian job is best known for Michael Caine's illustrious character Charlie Croker and car chases through Turin. He's also famous for that very famous uh, scene. In fact, I'm going to play this to you now. Hang on, hang on. Here we go. Uh, are you ready for this famous uh, quote coming right up five four three two one go you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off Excellent. I love that. Um, However, the film also features uh, the Royal Lancaster Hotel, where Croker celebrates his release from prison. In the 1960s, the recently opened hotel was alive and swinging, with the Beatles celebrating their after party for the release of their Yellow Submarine uh, film there. And I didn't realise this, but Cary Grant married the hotel's PR executive, Barbara Harris. So, to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the Italian job, general manager Sally Beck has put together a little, with her team, has put together a little uh, package of um, themed uh, events and, and ideas. To mark the occasion, the Italian job rally will be providing an exact replica of one of the original mini cars that appeared in the 1969 film starring Michael Caine and in a nod to the remake which starred Mark Wahlberg in 2003. Mini Park Lane will be providing a Mini Cooper S in shade starlight blue for hotel guests to take selfies in. And an interesting little factoid about that was that um, when they made that original film, uh, if you remember, there was the famous uh, scene with the, all the minis going through the streets um, in Italy. And they, they asked Minnie to supply them the cars and they wouldn't supply the cars. They, 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 at the t- it was just unheard of to have product play- placement in films or, or certainly very rare. So the, the production crew had to go out and purchase the cars themselves um, uh, to use them in the movie. And of course, it was one of the greatest advertising campaigns that Minnie could ever dream of. So so um, just the idea that they wouldn't supply the cars and they, the, the production team had to buy them. So uh, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that um, article in Hospitality and Catering News. Um, I love the, the artwork in that article as well. Uh, really, really nice. That poster with uh, Michael Caine is, is, is something I, I'd love to have on my, on my wall here in the office. I must have a look for that. Here's a story that uh, really resonated with me, and it was written by Tony Naylor in the uh, Big Hospitality, and he says, why restaurants need to stop the upbeat interrogation. And it really made me laugh. I, I, I mean, laugh out loud, because the way it's written is is very funny. Uh, but more importantly, I think he's he's onto something. He's, he's absolutely right. I am sick and tired of the way... Uh, this over familiar sort of style of service um and and he, he he captures that really nicely in this article and i'm going to share it with you because it's worth reading um in a misguided bid to connect waiting staff are increasingly quizzing guests about their mood and plans give me a break he says and then 
he goes on to talk about uh, how he, you know, he's not immune to charisma and he, he doesn't mind being charmed, but he, he just, it's just got gone too far. So here he writes, what I am calling the upbeat interrogative appears to be based on the idea that firing inquisitive personal questions at guests. So guys, are you having a great weekend? Have you got anything exciting planned for the rest of the evening? What brings you to Leeds on a Thursday? will make them feel personally attended to. You are more than a table number to us. We care. But is anyone fooled by this, he says? Am I alone in finding this less deep and meaningful and more deeply awkward? As a naturally private person, my instinctive reaction when quizzed by strangers is, mind your own business. I dislike over-familiarity. Plus, it is a failing, I know, but I can't do small talk. I am genetically condemned to tell the truth. Ask me how my day is going, and if the answer is shit, I will tell you. No one wants that, do they? No one wants to hear me moaning. But then he also goes on to turn that around. He says, um, I'm also confused by the dynamic here. Is this newfound interest in my welfare supposed to be a two-way street? Am I supposed to ask how the waiter is? Or what are we up to after their shift? That would be plain weird. I agree, Tony. Uh, Fantastic article. Really love the way you've written it. Uh, Link is in the show notes. Go and um, have a read. And and actually, connect with him on LinkedIn. Um, Sorry, on on Twitter. He is uh, fantastic. I love love, uh, what he links to, what he talks about, um, and his his whole style of humour is is fantastic. He's a guy I think I could enjoy a pint with if I was a pint man myself. I did mention earlier on in the show that I had a couple of podcast uh, recommendations for you, and and here's here's a couple that are that are worth um, listening to. Now, the first one I'm going to mention is based on the TV, the miniseries called Chernobyl. Have you seen Chernobyl? And if you haven't seen Chernobyl, oh my God, watch Chernobyl. It is amazing, and I say amazing because I did not realize how big. A disaster that was uh, in 1986. I remember the headline. I remember hearing about it. But uh, I guess at the time the Russians did such a good job of keeping a lid on um, on the crisis that it, it it took years for it to come out. Um, and what happened was HBO together with Sky put together this uh, amazing production of the events as they unfolded. And there were a couple of Twitter feeds that I saw where people were there and they were commenting on how authentic the whole look and feel of the, the, the sets were and, and the dialogue and the, and, the, and the clothes they were wearing, the music they were listening to. If you haven't watched uh, Chernobyl, I think you should be able to download it from the Sky uh, box set or catch up tv i hope you can if you can't then uh try and catch that somehow because it is the most compelling what you could ever imagine in the meantime i would also recommend the chernobyl podcast um the official podcast of the miniseries from hbo and sky it is quite incredible and what i really like about well i'll tell you what have a listen to this just a, a little snippet for you you know, that he's yeah. reading the, the notes. By the way, it's right. an amazing bit of acting on Jared Harris's part yeah. to sort of show that you just saw the worst news in the world on a piece of paper. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Page three, the section on casualties. Uh, a fireman was severely burned on his hand by a chunk of smooth black mineral on the ground outside the reactor building. Smooth black mineral. Graphite. There's, there's graphite on the ground. There was a, a tank explosion. There's debris. 
Of what importance that could There's be? There's only one place in the entire facility where you will find graphite. Inside the core, if there's graphite on the ground outside, it means it wasn't a control system tank that exploded. It was the reactor core. It's open. Let's talk about the scene in the Kremlin. Uh, first of all, we finally get to meet somebody we recognize, Gorbachev. <laughs> it's a right. fine, fine replica of his, uh, of, his, of his wine mark. Yes. We tend to think in the, in the West of Gorbachev as a relatively heroic figure because we credit him with voluntarily ending the Soviet Union. As a reason, <laughs> oh, I don't know how accurate that is, but that's how we tend to think of him. Right. He comes across as not tremendously heroic and certainly not a leader here. He comes across as yet another Soviet bureaucrat, the top Soviet bureaucrat, who seemingly, like everybody else, is concerned for his own reputation, position, and future. And that's, they go on and talk about, you know, break down the scene, what was going on, and the director himself is talking about, you know, why he positioned or, or, or presented facts a certain way. Some of the dramatic scenes are based on what it must have been like it to be in the room at the time. So you have to you have to kind of unpick that and make your own mind up. This other podcast is much more closer to home, and it's one that I've only discovered this week, and I'm really pleased that I have. It's called Humans in Hospitality. Um, founder and presenter Mark Cribb. Uh, he wants to tip the balance back in favor of the independent businesses. And what I really like about this is that he has um, basically, gosh, he's done 19 or so now so far interviews with uh, people who are doing amazing things in hospitality in the UK at the moment. Uh, so he's got people like um, Ollie Perron from Lunched. He's got Nick and Tom from Bareface Brewing. And his most recent one uh, with William Curley, the... Uh, the master chocolatier and pastry chef, uh, who is been working, who has been working with Searcy's and Harrods and Claridge's, I would recommend subscribing to that and get. Uh, uh, you know, he's he's been putting out an episode every every week, two weeks. Uh, I have to hand it to you, fantastic! I really enjoy um, listening to these uh, interviews. So keep up the great work, Mark. I think you're doing a fabulous job. It's 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 brilliant to see. So that's pretty much it. Uh, let me see. I've got one final little piece of resource to share with you. Uh, this is a blog post that was written for the uh, website hubspot.com. And it's called Stop Doing Stupid Sh**. 18 Outdated Sales Tactics to Abandon in 2019. Uh, written by Dan Tyre. And he goes on to give you 18 really, really uh, amazing sort of takes on things that used to work and used to be effective and no longer work or certainly are not as effective these days. Uh, for example, cold calling no longer works, getting on a plane to start a relationship or overselling the product um, or treating your product demonstration as the end all and be all. Um, so it's uh, some for if you're in sales development or if you're starting out, you've got a little startup and you're trying to build that business, um, then this is a great little article to read. So what are your thoughts? Uh, I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, you can share your thoughts with me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Thomas Kilroy, F-I-H. That's F for Fellows of the Institute of Hospitality, F-I-H. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Or if you want to just send me an email, uh, you can find me uh, at talkshow at kitchensink.news. And that's sync as in S-Y-N-C. I'd love to hear what you have to say. So before I close, I have a big favor to ask. Um, if you do enjoy this podcast and if you are still listening, I really, really appreciate it. You have no idea. Thank you very much. 
please just take two minutes out of your day. Go to the um, Apple um, iTunes store and leave a little review. Anything you can do to share this podcast will be really appreciated. Um, You can also now find me on SoundCloud under Kitchen Sink, as well as um, Overcast, which is a, a fantastic platform for finding and discovering great podcasts. So this has been uh, Kitchen Sink. I'm Thomas Kilroy. And until the next time, whatever you do, make it productive and fulfilling. Thank you for listening.